Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In 2019, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, designated April 15th as World Art Day. Audrey Azoulay, the Director General of UNESCO, said... This World Art Day is a timely reminder that art can unite and connect us even in the most difficult of circumstances. Indeed, the power of art to bring people together, inspire, heal, and share has become increasingly clear during recent conflicts and crises, including COVID-19. Today on City Lights, we'll hear about art and sustainability in a show at MODA, the Museum of Design Atlanta, and celebrate diversity in contemporary art with a visit to the Lou Stovall exhibition at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens. First, We're off to the High Museum to hear about an innovative figure in photojournalism. Andre Kertes is considered among the greatest photographers of the 20th century, all the more remarkable as he was self-taught. The Hungarian-born artist made his reputation in Paris during the 1920s, capturing the poetry of everyday life and people on film. After the Nazis rose to power, Kertes fled Europe for the U.S. in the late 1930s. His works are on display at the High in a rare exhibition now, André Kertes, Postcards from Paris. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the museum's Assistant Curator of Photography, Maria Kelly. 
He was born in Budapest to a middle-class Jewish family, and he started learning photography and darkroom techniques while he was in Hungary as a young man. And he was working in Hungary. He was enlisted in the army for World War I. And then after that, he decided that he really just had to go to Paris and see if he could make a name for himself there and see you know, what kind of artistic practice he could lead in a city that was so culturally vibrant in the 20s. So that took him to Paris. And there he just met a beautiful array of people who were influential to him. He had time and space to go and explore the city and sort of refine his own own visual direction. And uh, it ended up just being really, really formative in the long term career that he had until the rest of his life. And I read that he didn't originally go to school to be a photographer, wanted to pursue it. And I think his family wasn't very supportive of that dream at first. Is that right? Yes, they wanted him to go work in the stock exchange. And he did go to school for business and worked briefly as a stockbroker, but it just really wasn't his dream. So he pulled away from it. Gotcha. And what a time to be in Paris. I mean, there were so many amazing artists and novelists and painters that were in Paris, like Pablo Picasso, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald at the time. Who were some of the artists in Paris he was collaborating with when creating his photos? Well, he was originally drawn to other Hungarians that he uh, met there. So you have to think when you're an immigrant moving to a new city, you don't speak the language, you don't know anyone there, you don't even have much funds to sort of, you know, make your name there. Uh, so he gravitated to other Hungarians who were working in artistic circles there. So he ended up being really great friends and collaborators with Laos Tahani, who is a Hungarian artist. He worked with Eva Ravai, another Hungarian artist who is a textile artist. And so he starts uh, getting to know more people and getting to know more people in Paris through this original core of compatriots. And they kind of are introducing him to other people. He's getting to show his work and get his work out there. The beauty of these carte postale prints is since they were so small, he was able to bring them to cafe tables in Paris. And honestly, in the 20s, this was where so much artistic dialogue was taking place. So there was one cafe in particular, the Cafe du Dôme, that he would frequent. And he said that he would spend all of his time there. He only went home to sleep. And so with the beauty of having these, you know, really small format photographs that he was developing, he could show them around at the cafe tables and have people understand, you know, this is my work. This is what I'm proud of. This is what I'm doing. And this exhibition is so special because this is actually the first time since the 1920s that they have been all gathered into one place uh, since they were handed, you know, across the cafe table. Uh, he also knew Piet Mondrian, um, and was really influenced by him. He photographed in his studio a lot. And Mondrian's studio actually reflected his artwork. So Mondrian's, you know, really clear, clean lines, you know, minimalist uh, abstraction. And his studio matched his artwork perfectly. So it was really free of clutter, perfectly organized. He wanted no instance of the color green in his <laughs> studio. So you can kind of see the level of, um, you know, perfection here. And so Kurtaj took a lot of photographs in his studio um, because he was just really intrigued by the forms uh, that he found there. And then that ended up also in turn uh, influencing his own artwork. He sort of started printing some of his photographs at angles, kind of mimicking the angled uh, canvases that Mondrian was creating at the time. So there's this really great artistic dialogue and exchange throughout his time in Paris. Mm -hmm. 
And why did he want to print his photographs onto carte postal paper, aka postcard stock? So it was a really popular medium at the time. Postcards were being sent in mass all over the place. It was actually uh, to such a degree that sometimes post offices would be overwhelmed by the amount of postcards that were being sent. So it's not an unusual format at the time. Um, it's definitely in pop- popular culture. People would get postcards made when they were out at a fairground. They were sort of attached to fun games there. So again, really popular culture medium at the time. But for Kurtej specifically, he really embraces it because of three primary reasons. Um, it was relatively cheap. Again, he was um, an immigrant to Paris. He didn't have a lot of funds. And so it wasn't the cheapest of papers, but it was one of the cheaper ones. It was incredibly convenient. He didn't need any kind of extra equipment to develop these pieces. So they were contact prints, which means he was just able to put the negative perfectly right on top of the piece of paper. He didn't need an enlarger. He didn't need, you know, really big trays to develop this. And so he had a very small room in Paris that he was staying in. And so this really suited his needs. And then finally, he loved the paper. When you come to see the exhibition, you'll see that there are these really lush tones in the prints um, and a really terrific range of black and white that come through in the paper. And he always made sure that he was using the same company and the same specific type of paper when he was developing. And then furthermore, he really enjoyed it because it lent itself to communication. So again, he wanted to be in touch with his family and friends in Hungary. And what better way to be to do that than to take photographs, um, maybe self-portraits, show that you're doing well, you're thriving, you're becoming a photographer and be able to send that back to fam- family and friends or um, being able to share it again, you know, across a cafe table and have people understand what your artwork looks like. So It was this nice combination of factors that really lent him to start working and only work in this format uh, between 1925 and 1928. Mm -hmm. With the prints that you guys have at the exhibition, when I think of postcards, usually people write a little something on the back of them. Do you guys have any of his writings on the back of the photos? So he honestly didn't usually write too much on the back. He was viewing these really as works of art rather than standard postcards. So whereas the intent was usually to, you know, stick a a stamp on the back and toss it into the mail, he never did that. He would always sign the front of the work. So you really understood that it was this, this was to him a full artwork. The entire object was the artwork. Uh, So he would sign it, he would title it, and then he would carefully put it into an envelope with an extra letter that he signed. Back to family and friends. So they didn't function in the way that most of the time we would imagine postcards functioning. Again, really, it was the object was the work of art. And sometimes you'll see he would have maybe added a little detail on the front. There's one where he signed a self portrait of himself uh, that he was sending to his brother and he signed it with his nickname. You know, that was a family nickname. So you see it occasionally, but usually they were really these sort of pristine objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was looking through and prepping for this interview and I. Uh, came across an interview he did it in the 80s before he passed away. And in the interview, he said, you don't see the things you photograph, you feel them. How did Andre demonstrate his feelings or what he wanted to convey in these photographs? Through a number of ways. Uh, You'll see a lot of portraits in the exhibition. And these portraits are both really inventive, but also warm. You feel like there is an emotional connection between him and his subjects. And they're taken from really interesting angles. They're taken with dramatic lighting sometimes. They don't look like your standard, maybe stiff sort of studio portraiture. So I think there's a connection with people that he has. And then my personal favorite thing I think about Kurtej is he's taking the mundane, sort of the most humble object 
relationships around him and making them worthy of notice and appreciation. He's taking an object like a fork, a simple fork that's leaning against a plate and he's ha he has a bright light shining above it. So it's shadow kind of curves into the plate. And it's one of those prints that the moment he printed it, it had great international acclaim. It was published in magazines. He published a few different copies of it. And it was just this idea that, you know, a fork, something that we all use every day, you know, not something we maybe stop and think of as this grand work of art is something that was elevated to something that was worthy of the distinction of fine art. So he's really sort of working in this fashion of both appreciating, I think, his subject matter emotionally as well as formally. He's noted as one of the seminal figures of photojournalism. How was Andre's photographic style revolutionary and unique to that era? So when he's getting his start in Hungary, again, you know, learning the you know skills behind photography, the trend at that point in time was much more pictorialist. So it was the attempt to make photography look more like a painting. It was a little bit more painterly. They would print with a format that also looked kind of more textured. And Kurtage from the start was not interested in this. He won an award even at an exhibition in Hungary at one point, but he refused to print it in the style that they wanted him to print it, which would make it look more painterly. He rejected the award. They took it back. <laughs> Just oh gave him a certificate instead because he was so dedicated to printing it straight. So he's interested in, you know, looking at things straight on, taking them uh, at face value. So looking for lines, looking for shapes, uh, light, sort of a larger formal appreciation of aesthetic instead. And I think that's then really one of the reasons he's helped with the turning point in photography. It did shift completely away from this pictorialist movement and into more straight photography. And that, of course, then lends itself to photojournalism as well. You know, there's, there's not a lot of space for a kind of a painterly aesthetic with that kind of endeavor. He was living in Paris and capturing its beauty during a period between two world wars. Do you think that factored into what or maybe who he was photographing? Definitely, especially since he had served in the army during World War One and he was wounded during that time. I think Paris was such a fresh start for him in many ways. It was his one chance finally. I mean, he had been dreaming of going to Paris for years. It was his chance to finally be on his own and, you know, find his own way as a photographer and establish his name. So I think it was really, you know, a fresh start for him and an exciting moment. And then Paris during that time was exciting. I mean, all of the great artists and writers that you mentioned that were working there at that time you know, it was, especially in art history, you know, one of the most formative moments in the 20s to be in Paris at that time. And then, yeah, of course, it's in between, I, you know, nobody maybe would have known, of course, at that time that it was between the wars. Um, so he's really captured a, a very specific and unique moment. He also had nothing but time on his hands when he first moved there. Again, didn't speak the language, didn't know many people. So the way he developed his artistic eye was just to roam the streets and any scene that he came upon that interested him, he would photograph it. So he was not making photographs for any businesses or commissions or organizations that had, you know, certain requirements of him. He was making them just for himself. Any small mundane scene, perhaps, that others would have looked past, if it interested him, he went for it. Mm. When I was looking through his photos, it kind of reminded me of the movie Midnight in Paris. Have you ever seen mm -hmm, Definitely. <laughs> so dreamy and I oh, just yep. loved it. Absolutely loved it's it. It's great. Can you talk about some of the photos that are on display in the exhibition that defined his career? Sure. 
so fork which i mentioned earlier is definitely one of his most uh, noteworthy images and significant because at the time it was immediately received uh, with such a claim it was also reviewed in one uh, publication and i just have to give you the quote for it because i think it gives such a sense of the image uh, it said quote among the still lives one must above all admire a fork by andre cortez yes simply a fork which is almost moving in its purity and its tones it is perhaps the only image that gave me the impression of a true work of art so there's that one. There's an image he took in Mondrian's studio, Chez Mondrian. That one is also was well known at the time. He printed at least eight copies on carte postale paper, whereas usually if you're seeing these prints in the show, there's maybe only one made. So these are really rare and unique images, um, and especially with the objects being on the carte postale paper. With the Chez Mondrian image, he obviously was interested in it. Maybe other people were also interested in it. So there's at least eight copies in existence still today. And that image is fantastic. It's a scene of the interior of the studio, but he's opened the door so you can see the stairway outside of the studio as well. So the image almost looks like it's split perfectly in half. The right side has this light coming through the door, this beautiful spiral circular kind of staircase in the background. And then the left side is much more organized and sort of angular, it's a little darker. And there's this one flower sitting on the table in a vase, except the flower is made of paper, so it doesn't quite look like a realistic flower. And the whole scene just works beautifully together. And it really emphasizes his formal approach to scenes, you know, really looking for these lines in the light and dark. And then I think the third image that's really significant in the show is Satiric Dancer. And the interesting thing about that is it wasn't actually well known at the time. It really only gained acclaim much later in his life when he was starting to have exhibitions of his work put together. But Satiric Dancer features a friend of his, a Hungarian dancer, and she is kind of sprawled, you, again, you have to come to the show to see it, but she's kind of sprawled on the couch with her legs in different ways. Her arm is up over her head and she is mimicking this sculpture that's to the side of her that also has these really angular movements. And we actually have that sculpture in the show wow. too, which is exciting. That is yeah, really cool. Really exciting. <laughs> to have a 3D object in a photo show, we usually don't get 3D objects. <laughs> and so this is a really fantastic piece. You get the sense of movement. It's dynamic. It's different. And that ended up being, you know, a very celebrated image of his, but later on in his life. So it's cool to see what resonated at the time, what didn't, you know, and, and sort of see how it's shaped his, you know, over of work altogether. Because mm -hmm. this exhibition just focuses on the first three years of his life in Paris, correct? Yes, exactly. So he moved there in late 1925, immediately started printing on these carte postale prints, postcard paper, which just to explain, they're very, very small. This is a show that's kind of full of gems. You have to want it. So unlike a lot of our other exhibitions, which is, you know, large scale photography, you can kind of take it in all in one go. These really require you to lean in and, you know, take your time looking at the details and the small details. So the prints themselves are printed on three by five by 5.5 5 
inches paper. So we're talking about really, really small. And then he sometimes cropped even smaller from there. And he starts again, for all the reasons earlier, starts printing on this paper, but he prints just from his arrival in 1925 to 1928, when all of a sudden he started sort of getting more acclaim. He started working for magazines. He got a different camera, which didn't lend itself to printing in this format so well. Um, so it's a really perfect little amount of time showing his establishment as an artist and his establishment in Paris. So yeah, it's a little, um, a little memorable moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all before he relocated to New York. Yes, yeah. So he moved to New York in 1936 with his wife. He was extended an offer by Keystone Press Agency to work in New York. And this was also a really good timing because anti-Semitism was definitely on the rise at this point and they were feeling very uncomfortable. So it was a good moment to relocate and they stayed in New York then for the rest of their lives. Maria Kelly is the assistant curator of photography at the High Museum of Art. Postcards from Paris is on view at the High through May 29th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, we'll explore the intersection of art and environmentalism. In full circle, design without end. A new show at Moda the Museum of Design Atlanta. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Since the Industrial Age, technology has significantly improved our quality of life. For many, it has even extended life. But the costs to our natural environment are immense and demand reckoning. At Moda, the Museum of Design Atlanta, a new exhibition, Full Circle, Design Without End, explores how design projects can sustain and even regenerate natural systems. I'm joined now via Zoom by Moda's Executive Director, Laura Fluch, and the exhibition's co-curator, Veronica Klusik. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. How did Moda develop the concept for this exhibition? This exhibition came into being about three years ago. 
when Moda started a conversation with the Candida Fund about regenerative design or the idea that we can design buildings, systems, landscapes, objects that make positive impact on the environment. And we began to work with them on a project which was meant to bring the idea of regenerative design and the idea of design as one of the most powerful tools we have for taking on climate change to the Atlanta audience. We share the Candida Fund's interest in climate change. And at Moda, we believe that design inspires change, transforms lives, and that it makes the world a better place. And it can be used to take on some of the biggest problems that we have. Climate change is right up there, if not the number one uh, one. So we began a collaboration with Candida in order to elevate that conversation here in our city. Hmm. Design is an enormous umbrella of different fields of expertise. There's architecture, urban planning, product design, fashion. Can you tell us about the different areas of design the show explores? At Moda, we kind of approach design in a little bit of a different way in that we define it as a process and as an agent of change. Um, So when we came into the full circle exhibition, we kind of came in with a very wide scope of what regenerative design can look like. So we included a lot of the fields of design that you mentioned, like architecture, industrial design. So there's a lot of products in the exhibition. We also included landscape design, but then we also included um, a few examples of systems design, um, especially around for example, agricultural systems as well. Yeah, so I think that covers a lot of the big ones. Are there examples of everyday objects or technologies we all know whose design has been re-envisioned through this lens of ecological conservation? There's so many exciting ones, Lois. For example, there is a section about circular design, which is the idea of not creating virgin materials like virgin plastic or virgin nylon, but being able to take the plastic and nylon objects we have and recycle and reuse them. So there are some exciting companies that are doing things like that. There's one called Bureo. They work out of South America and they rescue fishing nets. Fishing nets are the single largest contribute to our plastic pollution in our oceans. So they rescue fishing nets that have been discarded in the oceans, recycle them, and then work with companies like Patagonia to turn them into outerwear and sports clothing that we might wear. Um, There's another very exciting company called Aquafil. They're Italian-based, but they have an outpost here in Cartersville, and they recycle carpets and fishing nets and other plastics and turn it into a fiber called Econil that lots of companies use to create rugs, outerwear, purses, sunglasses, swimsuits, chairs, lots of different things. So there's a lot of objects like that. I just am amazed by that and so encouraged by it. I mean, to think of what is essentially trash and ruining our environment and 
collecting it and then turning it into something with purpose and with design is just amazing. It's true. And I think one of the really important things that comes through in the exhibition and, and that I've come to think more about is how we as consumers can make those conscious choices. So for example, if you need to refurnish your office, you could consciously choose to put human scale products in it because they also work with the company Boreo and they make products that are net positive and they use a lot of recycled materials from fishing nets and, and other things in their products. So I think an important piece there is that we can be agents of the change just as individuals. It takes educating people though. I mean, certainly it's wonderful to hear about these examples. How do you get it out before a wider audience though? Well, certainly we hope people will come in and see the exhibition, but we are doing a lot of programming. The exhibition is up until September 25th and MOTA programming happens both virtually and in real life. So we will have some talks and events that are happening on different sites, like in the Candida building at Georgia Tech or in a, a landscape in Avondale Park that's being renewed by a company called Shades of Green here in Atlanta. So we'll be out seeing things and participating in things and inviting people to join us. Um, and then we'll also be hearing from experts who are speaking virtually from across the world to, to help us understand more about this subject. Outstanding. We've mentioned the Candida building now more than once. In the category of sustainable architecture, you feature this Atlanta landmark, which is called the Candida Living Building for Innovative Sustainable Design at Georgia Tech. Students attend classes in what is designated as one of the greenest buildings in the world. Will you describe its design and how the building incorporates living natural systems? Well, the Candida building is, I believe, the 28th building on the globe to be designated as a living building which is the highest green standard there is for architecture in the world. In order to become a living building, a building has to produce more energy than it uses, which the Candida building does. It has to clean and restore water into the ground more than it uses, which it does. Um, so the Candida building is in some ways acting as a living part of our environment and mimicking um, the things that our natural systems do by creating energy and cleaning water. It was also created using a lot of reused materials in order that they wouldn't land in landfills. Um, and that's another important piece. And then I think it's an amazing thing for us to have in Atlanta because we can visit it as the public and there are Georgia Tech students in there. And it's a great study in, in how we can create beautiful, really functional buildings that make a positive impact um, rather than try to do less, less harm. Yeah. The designers, I read the Miller-Holt Partnership and the architectural firm of Lord X Sargent claim that the Candida building 
generates more solar energy than it uses. Where does this energy go? The energy goes back into our energy system to be used in other places. And I was on a tour the other day of the Candida building and a, a student who was giving us the tour told us, I believe she said it was producing about 210% of the energy it uses. My goodness. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Laura Flusch and Veronica Klusik, co-curators of Full Circle, Design Without End. The exhibition is on view at Moda, the Museum of Design Atlanta. There's a VR experience for visitors where you can virtually tour the Candida building. How does that virtual interaction and other displays in the exhibition, how do those give us a sense of the building's special regenerative components? Well, of course, we have some some text panels that talk about the building and what it achieves. But when you put on the VR headset, you really are right there in the building. And it has such fidelity that you're able to walk around and read the signage they have up in the building explaining how the building works. You can visit things like the extraordinary toilets that uh, everybody loves to visit when they visit the Candida building because they use very little water and a special foam to deal with what goes in them. So it gives you a chance to walk around, to look at the materials from which the building is made, to look at the systems that are running it, to read the things they have on the wall there, uh, and just get the feeling of what it's like to be in a building like that. Mm. There is a dress in the exhibition. I saw the carbon garden dress that uses algae to capture CO2 and emit oxygen for its wearer to breathe. I am very curious about how this works and the possible uses for such an innovation. I mean, are we going to see these carbon garden dresses on the runways? I would love to see these on the runway someday. The idea behind the project itself is a bit more speculative. So the designer created these garments within a vision for the future in which individuals are made aware of their carbon impact, of their individual carbon impact. And it's the dress is meant to become kind of an integration into this awareness um, and the sense that in this imagined future, we would all receive a certain amount of carbon credits per day that we could use that whenever we make an action, we use up these carbon credits. And by wearing this dress, we can earn more carbon credits because our dress is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and kind of cleaning the atmosphere in this while we wear it. So it's a very interesting dress in the sense that it encourages us to both be aware of our carbon impact as well as encourages us to deepen our relationship with the algae that we're wearing. And if there are shoes to match, <laughs> you could quite literally shrink your carbon footprint, right? <laughs> exactly. 
It's just amazing to think about these things. It also reminds me, at WABE, we were very proud some years back. It was the first time we offered shopping totes as a thank you gift during a fundraising campaign that said, I used to be a water bottle made from recycled plastic bottles. Great. Among the types of design that can help foster natural ecosystems recovery, this exhibition at Moda even includes game design. How can gaming enthusiasts become part of the movement to help our environment? Games are so important, I think, Lois, in that similar to the the speculative design project that Veronica described, they help us imagine another way of being or living or another reality. When we play a game, whether it's a video game or whether it's a board game, and we have both in the exhibition, we take ourselves to another realm and we have to deal with the consequences of our actions and other people's actions, just the way we do in the real world. So we get a lot of practice at those sorts of things. Over the past decade or so, game designers, and again, both video game and board game designers have been collaborating with scientists and ecologists and environmentalists. And there's a lot of games out there now that help us imagine a world in which we are more responsible to nature and the ecosystems that we than we have been in the past. And so we bring the games in and encourage people to sit down and enjoy them, both for the practice of imagining a different world and, and having fun, but also getting acquainted. You know, game design is, is a design field as well. Getting acquainted with the work of the designers who've created these amazing experiences that help us think about how the world can be a better place. Laura Flusch and Veronica Klusik, co-curators of Full Circle Design Without End, the exhibition at Moda, the Museum of Design Atlanta, on view through September. More information is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, we'll continue our celebration of World Art Day and discuss Lou Stovall of Land and Origins, the exhibition on view at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. World-renowned printmaker and artist Lou Stovall has a new exhibition in his birthplace of Athens, Georgia. Lou Stovall of Land and Origins highlights the works that were inspired by his life, by nature and poetic meditations. The show is on view through May 29th at the Georgia Museum of Art on the campus of the University of Georgia. 
Shania Harris is the museum's curator of African-American art. She joins us now via Zoom. Shania, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we know Lou Stovall as a master screen printer, respected and beloved by other artists. Please tell us about his life and background. As you noted earlier, Lou Stovall was born in Athens, Georgia, but his family moved to Springfield, Massachusetts when he was about four years old. So he didn't actually grow up in Athens. He grew up in um, Massachusetts. But prior to moving to the Northeast, uh, apparently uh, one tidbit of trivia that I found out uh, from the family is that his father actually worked on campus. Oh. So that kind of brings it, you know, kind of brings it full circle for us because, I mean, as you probably, you know, as most people probably figured that the university has always been the center of Athens, Georgia. And so his father actually worked on campus as a cook uh, before they the family moved to Springfield. Interesting. And I read that Lou, as a kid, maybe not even a teenager, worked in a grocery store in Massachusetts. And that's how he became enthralled with printing. Right. So... Screen printing, you know, most people associate it with, you know, with signs and posters and things in the commercial realm. So that's where Lou received his kind of his initial uh, sensibility about designing and screen printing was through working at a a grocery store. So it just kind of demonstrates, you know, the power of, you know, those those early uh, bouts of employment for people they can evolve into a full career that goes in all sorts of directions. And how a young teenager can already have the artist's eye, which was captivated by that. Why did he focus on silk screening in particular? I'm curious about what makes Stovall's screen printing technique unique. Well, Lou actually um, studied at Howard University uh, in the early 1960s. And again, he already had that exposure to some design and, you know, signage making and so forth. And while he was in school and also working at yet another silkscreen signage shop called Botkin's um, Sign Shop uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland, he also became involved with uh, designing posters for area events related to art, activism, uh, concerts, festivals, and so forth. And, you know, then he began to really refine his technique. Also, he was studying with a lot of great artists at Howard University in their renowned art department, names that maybe listeners may have heard, like David Driscoll, James Wells, uh, Lois Maylou Jones and others were still actively teaching there. And so he was able to combine a sensibility about the fine arts from studying at Howard University with the more practical uh, concerns of the time and the era where making imagery that spoke to, you know, an event or a concept 
very quickly through the screen printing uh, process uh, was possible. But his silk screening technique, from what I understand, was extraordinary in the way that he printed did not just produce a flat appearance. Is that correct? Or is that the screen print? Right. Right. So when we think about, you know, posters and, and, you know, other, you know, like media that that would kind of correspond to, you know, you think of just kind of a flat image with lettering, you know, and, you know, maybe bright color to get your attention for the purposes of, you know, maybe purchasing something or attending or connecting with uh, something in a very quick level. One of the things that I find interesting about uh, Lou Stovall's technique is that he actually invites closer looking rather than a quick look with his work. So I was walking through the galleries as we're installing them and I remarked to one of our guards that I love his lines. I mean, he, he has a, uh, a very strong background uh, in draftsmanship. In fact, that's the foundation of his practice is drawing. And so his attention to the lines and, and composition all those skills coming from his training uh, and then combining it with the medium of screen printing is pretty remarkable. Yeah. He studied with rock star artists at Howard, and then he worked with major American artists. Who were some of those artists he collaborated with over the decades? Uh, some artists that he collaborated with included um, artist Sam Gilliam, who uh, is another longtime Washington-based artist that's finally, you know, getting his due at this point, um, historically. Jacob Kanan, Gene Davis, um, Alexander Calder, uh, Robert Mangold. And one of the more notable ones that I, when, in my learning about uh, Lou Stovall's importance, was uh, artist Jacob Lawrence yes. and uh, being a major figure um, in American art and among African-American artists. So there's a lot of, a lot of collaborations that he engaged in uh, that are memorable. Gwendolyn Knight, Lawrence's wife, I mean, you name it, you know, if, if it involved silkscreen, it was either he was involved in some way in the project or probably consulted because of his skill. Sean, you're reading about Lou Stovall. I got the feeling that this is a warm-hearted man who has had a happy family life and the respect of the best artists around. It, none of the tortured artist existence we we often hear sad stories about. Can you tell us about the impact of his designs and work in the community poster print making? Because you mentioned his poster work in the '60s and '70s. This, this was a hot time to be in Washington, D.C. Right. So, you know, one note that's of interest was that he was able to 
kind of assume a lot of uh, connections with what was going on in the art scene in particular through his friend Lloyd McNeil, uh, who was also a musician, who was a student also at Howard University. And if you can imagine, and I'm sure this probably was the case, you know, when you're a college student, you know, you're and you're immersed in a, a major city like Washington, D.C., you know, where there's all kinds of people coming into the district and, you know, entertainers, um, people in the political front, people in the arts front, uh, intellectuals uh, that, you know, they pretty much had a, a rich environment in which to interact. And, you know, performances were going on, they needed media to help communicate it. Uh, Lou became pretty sought after relatively quickly for his unique designs um, in collaboration with um, individuals like McNeil uh, and others. And then artists began to see the, of course, the artistry in that medium. And also there was a revival of silk screening um, in the 60s in general. So that kind of extended in the latter decades where it became, it was an easier medium to um, be able to reproduce, to communicate artistic messages, as well as other types of messages to different audiences very quickly. And so him being immersed in that, I mean, it was a perfect storm, if you will, of events, as well as situations that allowed him to really, you know, become more refined at the technique. And you mentioned his activism earlier. Would you say his community poster printmaking in the 60s and 70s was part of that activism? Yes, I think that, you know, you couldn't help but be a part of what was happening around you, particularly in Washington, D.C. Um, everything from protest marches to, to cultural events, you know, where people were kind of redefining what it meant to be American in particular. I would argue that it was very easy for him to be a part of uh, that larger community activism through his art. Included in the exhibition are several silk screens from Stovall's 1974 series titled Of the Land. How would you describe these works? These works of which, you know, we only have a, a subset, but it, it, it's funny because my earlier encounters with Stovall's work came largely through images from that series. So before I even encountered later works or maybe even earlier works that he may have done in, you know, in terms of like community posters and so forth, I saw these images of, I call them Tondo, you know, or kind of circular images of natural landscapes in nature, trees, rivers, birds that are fluttering above a landscape scene. So it's almost like kind of a stereoscope kind of image of nature where he's able to take many of his memories from growing up in Springfield um, in particular uh, and kind of translate them to the uh, kind of a landscape medium. And there's a long tradition of, you know, amongst many artists of capturing the landscape uh, one that comes to mind that I immediately think of is someone like Edward Mitchell Bannister, who it's possible that Lou Stovall may have encountered his work when he briefly studied uh, at RISD in Rhode Island. 
um, and also maybe even in learning about an artist like that from his time at Howard, uh, amongst other uh, American landscape painters. And so there's a way in which, you know, he's connecting to a longer tradition of um, African-Americans capturing landscapes rather than, you know, images of, you know, social situations or kind of social realist Spain, but um, being able to kind of personalize them and make them uh, more intimate for the viewer to appreciate. Curator Shania Harris, Lou Stovall of Land and Origins is on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at UGA through May 29th. Earlier this week on WABE, we reported the passing of Robert Hubert, a longtime colleague at the station, whom you may remember as the host of Nocturne, WABE's nighttime classical program. Bob continued to host the Atlanta music scene. He had a gorgeous sounding voice, deep and resonant. He was fluent in French and Italian, and while he enjoyed all classical music, his great passion was opera. Bob became most animated talking about opera performances, singers, and he relished the opportunity to speak those melodious Italian words. In contrast to the grand gestures of Italian opera he so loved, Bob himself was shy and reserved, though he did have a quick wit. I feel fortunate to have known him since 1987 and to have been his colleague for 30 years. Many listeners have expressed sadness to us this week about the death of Robert Hubert. I think Bob would have been amazed by the number of you who connected with him. I thank you all. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., the Grammy Award-winning musician Ben Harper stops by ahead of his performance at the Amplify Decatur Festival. Plus, Chris Escobar, owner of the Plaza Movie Theater, shares his excitement for the upcoming Atlanta Film Festival. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. 
But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.